Our text this morning is going to be Romans chapter 12. I'm going to read the first eight verses. We're probably going to only cover about the first one and a half verses uh, this morning. But I want to give you a little bit more of it. This is Romans chapter 12, starting at verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, in proportion to our faith. If service, in serving. The one who teaches, in his teaching. The one who exhorts, in his exhortation. The one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for gathering us together this morning in and around your word. We thank you for... Your word that has been prayed. We thank you for the word that has been sung. We thank you for the word that has been read. And now, Father, we thank you for the word that is preached. And we pray that you would uh, enlighten our minds, that we might know and understand your truth. We pray that you would uh, soften our hearts, that we might come to love and delight in your truth. And, Father, we pray that you would strengthen our bodies, that we may faithfully uh, live out that truth. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. We've probably, most of you, found yourself at some point uh, walking up to a group of people and discovering that you have entered into the middle of a conversation. And in that moment, there's a couple different responses that you could have. Uh, one is you walk into the conversation and uh, you quickly realize that um, you don't really know what they were talking about, but it doesn't matter. It's of no consequence, and you can kind of just join right in where, where you are and just enjoy the conversation. Uh, you may enter into the conversation, and you realize you have no idea what they're talking about, and you've missed some important things that they have talked about prior to you coming into the conversation, and you're kind of lost, but you don't care. It's not important enough for you to figure out what you've missed, so you either just smile and nod your head in the conversation, or you find a, a way to quietly slip, slip away. The, the third response you could have, uh, the final way is you, you step into this conversation and you step into this world where the participants are engaged and enjoying themselves in this discussion that you don't really know what they're talking about, but you have this hunger to know it. You have this hunger to participate in it. You have to know where have they 
gone from to get to this point in this discussion, I have to know what's going on here because I want to be in this conversation. Uh, even to the point you may be so bold as to ask them, what, catch me up. Like what, what have you already talked about? Get, get me up to the point where you're at right now. Jumping into the middle of Paul's letter is what we're going to be doing this morning. And it's kind of like that last response. When you jump into the middle of, particularly here, uh, Paul's letter to the church at Rome, and you hear something like Paul say, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Uh, we hear Paul making this monumental appeal to his fellow believers to do something extraordinary, and he does it on the basis of God's mercies. So we need to back up and we need to say, okay, well, what mercies, Paul, are you, are you referring to here? And so we back up a little bit. And just a few paragraphs earlier, we hear Paul explode into this glorious doxology. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. So we back up even further to see the depth of these glories on display. And before you know it, we have backed up and we're all the way back now to the beginning of Paul's letter. And that's where I really want to start this morning. I want to just take some time to walk us through how Paul kind of develops these mercies of God in the life of a believer that prompts him to, to appeal to us and exhort us to do what he's going to call us to do today, which is present our bodies as living sacrifices. So it begins, these, these glories, these mercies begin with the glorious revelation of a holy and righteous God to men and women from every nation and tribe and tongue and language, that God has revealed himself in his glory to the world. This is how Paul says it in chapter 1, verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Now that's mercy number one. God has been merciful to make himself known to his creation. Paul goes on, he says, For his invisible attributes... Namely, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. We also see at the very beginning of Paul's letter that how these creatures who, who God has made in his own image and has revealed his glory to them, how they have responded to this merciful revelation of himself. How have his creatures responded to him? And we see this in verse 21 of chapter 1. He says, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And then verse 25, he says, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. And then we also see here God's righteous response to man's unrighteous response to his merciful revelation of himself. 
We see it in verse 18. Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. God has revealed truth. This, this is who I am. And these men in their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And he says in verse 24, it's that God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. In verse 26, he says, God gave them up to dishonorable passions that are contrary to nature. In verse 28, he says, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. So God in his mercy has revealed himself to his creatures and his creatures have seen that glory and have rejected it for glory in their own image. And so God gives them over to that uh, the lust of their hearts, the dishonoring of their bodies, the debasement of their minds, the dishonorable passions that drive them. The suppression of the, of the truth that God has revealed through himself is not a mere intellectual action. It is the whole man, it is the whole woman uh, being conformed to the reality in which they live. This is the reality that they've made for themselves in rejecting God and so God gives them over to that reality. So they become like the gods to whom they bow. Have you ever noticed uh, in Scripture um, how the Bible speaks of men and women who are enslaved in their sin? They are completely defined by that sin. The Bible actually names them by the sin. So the Bible will call them murderers. He'll, the Bible will name them adulterers. They're liars. They're slanderers, they're thieves, they're rebels, they're revilers. When the Bible speaks of men and women who have given themselves over to the worship of themselves and have rejected God, their sin defines their whole being. Their whole identity, body, mind, and heart is bound up in what they obey. The flesh is how Paul describes this whole nature of a person controlled and corrupted by sin. Paul is going to use this term, the flesh, to describe men and women who are under the corruption and the absolute control uh, of sin. One who is living in the flesh or living according to the flesh is one who's trying to get life, trying to, to live apart from God. They're trying to get a life for themselves apart from the giver of life. That's what it means to be in the flesh. So just as Adam was cut off from access to the tree of life in the garden, so are all who have inherited his corrupted nature. Adam in his sin and rebellion cut himself off from the source of life, the tree, and all of us who have come after him who have inherited his nature are cut off from the true source of life. The flesh, as Paul uses it, can neither give life to others nor sustain life in itself. The flesh has no life. It can't give it and it can't sustain it. it it's, it's dead. Let me show you how Paul describes this truth. 
in Romans chapter 8, verse 5. And then I want to give you just a a brief example from one of my favorite stories. So here's Paul in uh, Romans 8, 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh, Paul says, is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. In uh, Bram Stoker's uh, classic horror story, uh, Dracula, don't think of any movie or show you've ever read. Read the novel, or scene, just read the novel. Uh, We meet a tragic character by the name of Renfield. And Renfield is a patient in a lunatic asylum in the story. And Renfield's an interesting character because the doctor who's over him will often come and observe him and try to figure him out. And one of the things he observes that Renfield does is he catches and eats flies all the time. He's constantly catching flies and eating them. And then at various points, he'll get tired. I guess he gets tired of eating the flies, and so he'll use the flies to catch spiders, and he eats the spiders. And then, not very often, but every now and then, he'll he'll use the bugs to entice birds to fly up to the window, and he catches the birds and eats the birds. And one time, he even asked his doctors if they would allow him to have a cat uh, in in his room. of course not, right? So they, the doctors wisely say, no, you, 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 can't, you can't have a cat. Yeah. Well, when asked about the flies, so the doctor asks him, he kind of pushes him on this, like, Why, what's with the flies? And he, he has an interesting answer. He perverts a, a, a phrase from Leviticus to give justification for why he's catching and eating flies. He says, the blood is the life. The blood is the life. Renfield is so consumed with with having immortal life, of of having and receiving life in himself, that he's convinced himself that by eating flies or eating whatever he can get his hands on, uh, he's going to somehow attain to real life. He's the perfect example of someone trying to find life in things that cannot give life. Renfield wants the life of the spirit. He wants life to the fullest, but he wants it according to the flesh. He somehow thinks that worldly, earthly, lifeless things can some, in some way give real life to, to him. In fact, he's driven mad in his earthly pursuit of immortality. And, and in fact, at one point in the story, the, the, the soul of a human is mentioned, and it, and it terrifies him, this idea that life could be more than just the flesh. So anyway, Paul's point here is that you cannot get life from something that doesn't have it to give. So when he says that uh, to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace, When he says life and peace, he's not using that as as if life and peace are possessions uh, 
that can be taken or bought or somehow discovered or found. Right? Life and peace are not things for you to attain or, you to, or for you to consume. It's not an invisible force that we consume into us. Life and peace are like the sunbeams emanating from the sun. Life and peace flow to us continuously from the source of life and peace. So, of course, to set our minds on the things of the Spirit is life and peace because the Spirit himself is life and peace. So when our minds are set on the Spirit, our minds are set on the source of life and peace. We put ourselves into the beam of the sun emanating the life and peace from the Spirit. The Spirit is the life. The Spirit is the peace. We're not just getting something from him. We are participating in something that he eternally has. That's why when, when Scripture speaks of salvation, the writers aren't referring to something that you get. Salvation isn't something you get. Salvation, in the fullest sense, is being reunited body and soul with the source of life and peace, and that's God himself. So when it speaks of us having salvation, what it's meaning in its fullest sense is that we now are being reunited with the one from whom all life and peace flow, and they are now flowing to us. That's salvation. We are alive because we are in Christ. So Paul argues in uh, Romans 5.10 that if while we were yet sinners, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be, we be saved by his life. So if we were reconciled to God in his death, now, much more, having been reconciled, we're going to be saved by his life. His life will be flowing into us. So God's ultimate expression of his mercy and grace, the fullest manifestation of his righteousness, is in reconciling sinful men and women to himself so that they might know and enjoy him forever. Paul's building this picture that the fullest expression of who God is and of his mercy and of his righteousness is that he, through the giving of his son, now reconciles men to himself so that they may have life in him, so that they might know him and enjoy him in his fullness. So the father sends the son to take on human flesh and in joyful obedience lays down his life for the life of the world. So we see that Jesus is the vindication of all that the law and the prophets have proclaimed. Jesus is the vindication that God is faithful to all his promises. Jesus, through his death and resurrection, has made it possible for mercy and truth to meet together, for righteousness and peace to kiss, as the psalm tells us. It's in Jesus that those two things are brought together. Those two things are reconciled so that we can be reconciled to God. And so we find that God is, as Paul says in his letter, just and the justifier of all who put their allegiance and trust in him. This is, this is how Paul has been moving through and, and highlighting the mercies of God. 
So that what we see here is this picture that I, you, no longer have to be inescapably enslaved to sin and death. That we no longer have to be at the mercy of our nature, corrupted and perverted by sin. We no longer have to live under the condemnation of the law, nor under the accusations of the devil. Jesus himself has come and he has made a way to true life and to true peace. And it's by following him to the grave. This is how Paul says it in chapter 6, verse 3. He says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So what we find here is by the mercy of God, no longer does our sin define us. It no longer defines who we are. Paul begins now at this point in his letter to deal with this new reality that in God's great mercy, Jesus has freed us from the tyranny of sin in our bodies so that we can be joined to him, our true king, and it is his life, his life that defines us now. When we are baptized, we are in God's mercy and grace associated with the death and the resurrection of Jesus himself. His death becomes our death so that his life can become our life. Again, look at chapter 6, verse 9. He says, we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. So we have been brought by the mercies of God into fellowship, into union with God himself. And what that means is the same spirit that hovered over the waters at creation, bringing life into the world, has now been given to us to fill us, body and soul, with the life of Christ. That is the spiritual man. That is the man who has been freed from a life of tyranny to sin and has been filled with the life of Christ. And it is the life of Christ now that defines him. This is salvation. This, in, in Paul's glorious picture he has painted, this is mercy and grace to the utmost. Our lives are now intimately connected with the life of Jesus and they have been, they have been so by the Spirit. So we have been given the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters. So just as Jesus, who cried out, Abba, Father, on the night before his crucifixion, that same spirit is within us so that we too can cry, Abba, Father. 
It means that because we have his spirit, we are his children. We're fellow heirs along with Christ of all the joy and the peace and the riches and glory that are his. It means that we have been brought into real communion with our new brothers and sisters in the faith who also share that spirit. It means also that we enter into this temporary but really glorious conflict that now uh, lives within us as long as we're in this life. Where the life of the spirit within us will not dwell in peace with the remnants of the flesh that are still weak and corrupted in our bodies. Paul describes this as the law of the flesh at war with the law of the spirit. We've been given the spirit of Christ, and because we have the spirit, this means that, one, we can fight. He says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies. Why do we not let sin reign in our mortal bodies? Because Christ reigns, and Christ is within us. It means that we want to fight. Not only can we fight against sin in our bodies, but we'll want to. This all because we have the Spirit of Christ. It means that we are not just waiting for a future salvation, a future life beyond the grave. It means that we're able to live in the life and peace and the power of Christ now. Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness, Paul says. So this this is the mercies of God. Therefore, I appeal to you, brothers, in view of God's mercies, the mercies that have brought to us true life and true peace, not as something just given to us or thrown to us or discovered by us or consumed by us, but by giving himself to us, by giving us his spirit so that his spirit will dwell within us as life and as peace. The great Anglican bishop, J.C. Ryle, he described it this way. He does it so well. He says, They feel a holy principle within their bosoms, which makes them delight in the law of God. But they feel another principle within, striving hard for the mastery and struggling to drag them downwards and backwards. Some feel this conflict more than others, but all who have the Spirit are acquainted with it. And it is a token for good. The fact that we have this glorious conflict at war in our bodies is a gift. It is an indication that the presence of the Spirit is there. He says, it is a proof that the strong man armed no longer reigns within as he once did with undisputed sway. The presence of the Holy Spirit may be known by inward warfare as well as by inward peace. The presence of the Holy Spirit in us will be known by both in the life of the Christian. In the life of the spiritual man and woman, it will be both inward warfare against sin and inward peace with God. He says, he who has been taught to rest and hope in Christ will always be one who fights and wars with sin. Now, all of this, really all of this and much more, um, 
is why Paul says in chapter 8, verse 12, So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. We're debtors not to the flesh. We owe the flesh nothing. This is the insanity of sin. This is the complete irrationality of sin. Why? When we have been the recipients of such grace and are debtors to such mercy, why would we ever feel any obligation to indulge in the desires and the lifeless promises of the world? Why would we feel that pull? It's eating flies and expecting the good life and then being surprised when it doesn't happen. There is only one reasonable response to such wonderful mercies. It is what brings us to the therefore of our passage this morning. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now we can enter into the conversation. Now we can see what Paul's talking about here. Think about what he's urging us to do here. He wants us to present our bodies. He wants us to offer up our bodies. There is in this an intentionality to it. It's like the sacrifices of ancient Israel. We are to take hold of the members of our body as, as the, the men and women of Israel would, would take hold of the sacrifices and bring them to the altar. We are to take hold of the members of our bodies and we are to do something with them. Intentionally, consciously, actively do something with them. Paul wants the presence of the Holy Spirit within us to have a tangible, active influence over how we use our bodies. How could a heart that has been awakened in love for Christ and a mind that has been enlightened to his truth do otherwise? We're not disembodied people. We are heart, mind, and body, and the life of Christ fills all of it. And so our hearts have come to love him. Our minds have come to know him. Why would our bodies not do anything other than worship him? Paul calls this spiritual worship. Or some translations, I think probably a better translation, is reasonable worship. He says, to offer your bodies, that's reasonable worship. That is spiritual worship. I think both these terms work here because when you understand how Scripture speaks of the spiritual person, the spiritual person is one who both body and soul is walking in the life and the peace of the Holy Spirit, who is under the influence of the Spirit. That is the spiritual person. It's reasonable or logical worship because in light of all that Paul has said up to this point, it's the only kind of worship that makes sense. Of course we would present our bodies to the Lord. Why would we offer up the members of our bodies to the flesh? Why would we do that? This is what we are to do. And he says that we are to take these bodies 
And we are to present them to God as a living sacrifice. Now, Paul here is using language taken from the sacrificial laws that would have been so vivid in the minds of his Jewish audience. Those laws themselves were a great mercy from God to his people. And so when Paul says to offer up your bodies as a living sacrifice, I don't want us to think in terms of atonement. It's not the sacrifice of atonement that Paul is drawing us to here. We don't present our bodies as a sacrifice so that we can be acceptable to God. We're not doing things in our body to earn favor with God. Christ has done that once for all, and Paul has made that very clear up through the first 11 chapters of Romans. So this sacrifice that Paul is calling us to, this isn't the story of the bad guy who at the end of the movie lays down his life uh, to make up for all the bad things he did the first you know, three-fourths of the movie. It, it's not that kind of redemptive, redemption that he's talking about here. Uh, it's not the guy who, who does something that inspires those who come after him. This is a living sacrifice, Paul says. And so in one sense, it means that the body we're offering up is living. It has life in it. It is a sacrifice of life. It's a living sacrifice. So we're offering up in service to God the life that he continues to pour into us by his spirit. So when we're offering up our lives to God, we're offering to God, in service to God, a life that he has given to us. He is continually pouring life into us so that we can, can take that life and continue to pour it out. So as Christ gave up his life so that we might have life, so now we are exhorted to pour out that life as worship into the lives of others. So it's my life for yours. It's life for life. It's mercy for mercy. And this is not just an attitude or a willingness towards sacrificing for others. It's not just a, well, if, if, the, if the time comes in the moment, in the crisis, yeah, I'll lay down my life. It's more than that. It's living in conscious awareness that every moment of my life, every moment that I'm enjoying and experiencing the life that God has poured into me by his spirit, every moment, I am not my own. I have been bought with a price. I am to actively, consciously, continually glorify God in my body. And I do that by sharing his life, not, not a version of my best life, not anything that I have in myself. I do that by sharing his life with those around me. Think in terms of the drink offering. Paul uses this imagery elsewhere, this, this idea of the drink offering, when he says uh, to the church at Philippi, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering, Upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. So Paul sees his life as like that of the drink offering being poured out. Or he encourages his son in the faith, Timothy. He says, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, and I have kept the faith. Now, John, the beloved, he says it 
a little more straightforward than that. John just simply says this, by this, we know what love is. Jesus laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Life for life. Receive life, give life. Receive peace, give peace. Receive mercy, give mercy. In addition to the drink offering, think also of the grain offerings and the peace offerings that Israel were to bring before the Lord. These offerings were made by the people of Israel in thanksgiving to God. They would bring these in gratitude for all that God had done, for his kindness and his provision. These offerings were both a pleasing aroma to God as they were laid upon the altar and the scent of it would rise to the nostrils of God and be a pleasing aroma to him. But they also were a shared meal uh, when you consider the uh, peace offering, there would be a meal shared among the people. Um, or if you consider the grain offering, that was to be enjoyed by the peace, the priests. The priests would enjoy this meal, this offering. And so Paul in Ephesians 5.2 says, And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So these things that Paul has in mind here, when he's talking about living sacrifices, holy and acceptable, or holy and pleasing to the Lord, it's a pouring out, it's a, a laying down uh, of our lives, our bodies in ways where others can feed upon us, be nourished by us. So then, every day, every day we wake up full of life. I don't mean every day we wake up and we give thanks to God because we're still breathing, although we should do that. You know, all, all of our limbs still work and our, our eyesight's still okay. And I mean, those are definitely mercies. But every day we wake up with real, full spiritual life. We wake up with the spirit inside of us, the spirit of Christ, the spirit of life and peace dwelling within us every day. The Holy Spirit pours forth within us the life and the peace of Christ. And he gives us the power to use the members of our bodies as instruments of righteousness. His life and peace can flow through our actions into the lives of other people. That's amazing. His life through us into the lives of other people. Amazing. We wake up every morning into new mercies. How will we respond to those mercies? Every day, new mercies in our lives. How do we respond in view of God's mercies? Will we offer the fragrant offering of forgiveness today to somebody who doesn't deserve it? Will that be the way that we present our bodies? Will, will it be the fragrant offering of real forgiveness to someone who certainly doesn't deserve it? And we might in those moments be tempted to give in to the weakness of the flesh. And we may be tempted to say, I can't forgive that person. What they did hurt me too much. I, I can't do it. You may be tempted to conform to the pattern and the thinking of this world. And in that moment, instead of offering forgiveness, you may say, no, I need justice. I need them to pay for what they did to me. 
what you need to do and what I need to do in those moments is I need to discern that God has mercifully brought these fires of adversity into my life. He has mercifully brought these fires of adversity into your life so that the life of the Spirit within you, the aroma of Christ, can come rising up through the fire. These are opportunities to present yourself in a way that you will be a pleasing aroma. You will be a blessing to those around you. Of course you can't forgive them, but Christ can. And his life, his spirit lives inside of you. That is reasonable worship. Consider the mercies that we will see and taste and receive this morning. Consider, as we come to the table this morning, consider the mercies on display, not only for us to see, not only for us to taste, but to receive from the Lord. Will we then go out this week from this table and be strength and joy to others, poured out, broken, offered up, Will we do that this week with our mouths, with our eyes, with our hands, with our minds, with our opportunities, with our resources, with the gifts that God has given us? Will we bring all of that, all of that, and present it so that the life that we have been given can be poured out and Christ can flow into the life of other people. That is the exhortation Paul has put before us today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mercy. We are debtors to mercy. And I pray that you would help us to more and more grow into that mature man, that mature woman who more and more the members of their body are being brought in line with the desires of our hearts and the understanding of our mind that what we know we love and what we love we do. And Father, we can only do that because we have your life within us. And so may, may we look to that this week. May we give thanks that you continue to give us life and peace. And may, may we never, ever Fall in the temptation of looking for that life and peace in anything else because it doesn't have it. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.